Hey, it's Jose Galison. No intro today. Right into it. Uh, you guys know what you want. You don't want to wait around. Don't want to fiddle with that shit. Uh, today, our guest, as you can see by the description, if you're looking at it, I have Dave Smith and Austin Pearson. We are doing a little bit of a debate today. Uh, uh, we, there will be a question and answer segment later on. So, and how that's going to work. If you're a patron, you can do questions there. Two bucks if you want to do it in the meantime, so you have a while. Or... Go to Rumble. I'll prioritize those. And last, YouTube. I don't. I'm not monetizing YouTube. I lost that a while ago. So yeah, I don't know. You put like all caps, fake super chat, or some bullshit. Like I said, I'm prioritizing Rumble, and uh, my patrons come first. But with that, patreoncom snowyjose2020. If you want to do that, uh, and then yeah, the lowest level is two bucks. The highest level is my sponsors. I read them off every episode. I have Toad, who's my co-host on Tower Gang at Tower Gang Toad. I also have at Abrogate D's, and then Kevin B. Clark, a full-time guitarist and private music teacher in the New York area. And I also have at Z-O-V-E-R-A-C-K, then at underscore Infinite Zeal, and then Jacob Daniel of the Biblical Anarchy Podcast. I believe I'm going back on there like next week. You can follow him on Twitter at Biblical Anarchy. I appreciate you guys for the support. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get these guys in here. I have Dave Smith of Part of the Problem. Then I have Austin Peterson of Wake Up America. We're gonna. This is what we're. This is how we're gonna do it. We're gonna go right into it. We're gonna have Austin with opening remarks. We're gonna do about three to five minutes of that. Then Dave going to that, and then I will have a three minute. I will tell them to knock it off at three minutes, and then I will mute them if it keeps going on uh, after we get past the intro segment. And like I said, there will be questions and answers. So hold off till then, because uh, I'm not gonna be able to see shit from way back in the chat, and I have no super chat function, so I can't track it. But with that, let's go ahead and get these guys in here. What's up, fellas? You ready to get into it? You ready to fight? <laughs> ready Let's to go. do it. All right, don't mind <laughs> right, my nap. We ready? Right. Yeah, awesome. The floor is yours. Okay, hope you don't mind. I've got some notes for this evening. Thanks for the invitation, Jose and Dave. Thanks for making this happen. I do think this is an important debate because I think there are a wide range of views in the libertarian movement when it comes to how we deal with conflict, not just interpersonal conflict, but international conflict as well. And what I have sort of started to do in the, in the past few weeks in the background of the Israel-Hamas debate is to sort of call out what I see as a sort of monoculture when it comes to libertarian views on foreign policy, which I really see as a form of absolutism. Uh, I always have always thought of myself as very much a heterodox person or a, a cherry picker, right? I was raised in a Protestant church and told you know that this is the fundamental word of God and that it cannot be questioned. And I always just kind of thought there was something wrong with that. So I've always resisted sort of any kind of a monoculture or fundamentalist or what I would call an orthodox view when it comes to philosophy or policy or politics. And, and I see very much the libertarian movement making mistakes by demanding a sort of purity when it comes to conflicts or a, looking at these conflicts in a very stark black and white terms. Not to say that there isn't a, a good or evil, and that if you look at things from a bigger picture, that you can't say that there are good guys and there are bad guys, especially in war, which is, I, I think, what we're going to talk about tonight. But I think the problem is, and this is what I've narrowed it down to, and, and you may laugh at first, but I hope that by the end I might have convinced some of you in the audience, that I think that actually the problem with some libertarians on foreign policy is they've actually adopted woke ideology to an extent when it comes to foreign policy. And here's how I get there. Uh, what, one of the arguments that I usually see is this concept of uh, when it looks, when you look at uh, an isolated event in history, 
You could take the uh, bombings of Hiroshima or Nagasaki. And libertarians will use a, a sort of woke worldview to look at something like that, which we call presentism. Uh, that's kind of a fancy word for what I like to call like the moral time machine, essentially, which is to judge the actions of people in a time period based on a moral worldview that exists today. And you'll see libertarians doing that quite frequently if you look at you know, World War II or if you look at the, um, the pioneers, you know, cowboys versus Indians conflict and things like that. We use our philosophical worldview of today to judge the actions of people who are making decisions based on the best information that they had. And we, since we have hindsight and perfect 2020 hindsight, we can say, oh, well, the Russians were going to invade Japan, so we didn't need to use this or they should have just dropped it off the coast. So I think that that's a, a bit of a problem in how we view some of these conflicts. And then also, I think that there's a sort of a nihilism in looking at conflict where it's like there's a sort of both sidesism, and and you know I don't consider myself a Rothbardian. I I very much am more in the Friedrich Hayek camp, although I think that Rothbard made a lot of good points. Some things like I cherry pick, I, I don't agree with Rothbard on, but he made really good arguments when it came to both sidesism. He says libertarians are allowed to pick sides, and that actually it's probably important for libertarians to say that one side is probably more responsible for a conflict than the other rather than to try and place ourselves above it and what i would say is a form of virtue signaling uh oh we're we're, we're so much better we just say we're anti-war and both sides have done have committed this this side committed this side this this side committed but even murray rothbard wrote a really good piece and i read on libertarianism.com i think that's scott horton's site actually i pulled out his uh talking about the insight into the root cause of war and aggression and into the nature of the state itself is well and good. The trouble is the libertarian tends to stop there and evade the responsibility of knowing what is going on in any specific war or international conflict and to try and take a third camp position, putting equal blame on all sides to any conflict and letting it go at that. He says it's a comfortable position to take, but he says that it means that you're irrelevant and it guarantees you make no impact on the course of events uh, or on public opinion on those events. I think that was a really good insight on his point. But what I think this really comes down to is a our philosophical views of how to approach policies, which is just basically a deontological view versus the consequentialist one, right? Essentially, the do you always apply a 100% absolutist view to a problem every single time, or do you look at this from a, from a question of what are the consequences of the decision that you're going to have to make at that time? So it's you know, if it's always wrong, for example, to transgress against property rights, if pollution is a violation of property rights, then the act of breathing, which creates carbon dioxide, is, you know, a violation of private property. I don't consent to secondhand smoke, right, for example. 30 more seconds. Right. Uh, so essentially, I think that the problem is, you know, we should be capable of violence as libertarians. I think we don't talk enough about how to fight, about how to end conflict through violent means. I think that don't tread on me, the Gadsden flag, that shouldn't be a dead letter, right? Because there are things that are worse than war. You know, as Patrick Henry said, is life so dear or peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know what, not what other path, you know, men might seek, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. We should be capable of violence, skilled in violence, knowledgeable of violence, because if you want peace, prepare for war. CV Pacham Parabellum. All right. Uh, that was uh, over five, but we'll go with it. Uh, Dave, uh, on to you. Uh, I think instead of obviously this is your int introducing remarks, I would recommend, I mean, take this however you want. 
uh, just kind of lay out your view on all of it, uh, you know, libertarian foreign policy. And then maybe if you want it at the end, I would say, and this is just my recommendation, do what you want with it. I would recommend maybe at the end, then kind of, you know, getting into some of his arguments if you'd like, and then we can start the back and forth. Well, but yeah, I know it's a, way too much to attack right now. But No, I <laughs> mean, on. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm a strict non-interventionist. I think that's the thing that's consistent with libertarian principles. I think most libertarians agree with that. I, I would just say that I, I don't even know how much of what Austin just said, I disagree with. I, um, I, I would, I take objection to the characterization that libertarians, I, like essentially my issue with Austin is that if you are a non-interventionist and we have this, this catastrophic war breaking out in, uh, in Palestine right now, <clears throat> and the, probably the group that I think are the absolute best on it, are the libertarians. And when I say the libertarians, I will say that I'm specifically speaking about uh, my camp of libertarians being the, the Ron Paul Mises Institute, Mises Caucus, kind of, and, and everything adjacent from that, that camp, I think have been the strongest non-interventionists and the ones who are not, don't come with all the goofy baggage that the left, the leftists who are opposed to this war tend to come with. Um, the, the accusation of like the both sides thing, I, I find this to be a very uh, a very popular talking point amongst the people who are on Israel's side of this conflict. I don't exactly know what that means. Uh, in the same way that when Austin says the presentism thing, I think another way to describe that would be an objective standard of morality. And yes, we do apply these objective standards to different time periods. That doesn't mean that you can't also take into account the environment that people were born into. And I also think that there's plenty of things that are wrong in today's and uh, what happens today with an objective standard of morality, for example, whatever, like libertarians have a lot to say about this. Today, we think it's totally, many people think it's legitimate to throw people in jail for heroin. And we will say that like, no, actually, if you have an objective standard of morality, this is enslaving someone for a nonviolent, you know, victimless offense. Um, the both sides argument seems to just mean that we're applying the same objective standard of morality to both sides. And that's, it's very convenient for people who are uh, on, on the pro-Israeli side to say, anytime you talk about the crimes of Israel, you're doing both siderism or whatever they want to call it. It's like, oh, so we're only allowed to talk about those, the crimes of one side in a conflict. Anyway, I think that my, my objection is that Austin, I think, has been going at the group who are the best on this right now. And I think he's been using a lot of tactics to go with them that I think are very unfair. Um, so I think that what's happening right now uh, is horrific. And there's this mass murder campaign going on by the Israeli government. And the idea that we should be cheering that on to me is is insane and completely uh, flies in the face of every libertarian value that we have and is the last thing that we should be doing. And I think Austin's on the same page probably with me and, and most of the people listening that America shouldn't intervene in the war, but I would still object, like, okay, it's slightly better than the position of people who support intervening, but I would still object to cheering on the mass murder. All right. Hard to uh, say. Real, real okay, quick, can, now, now yeah. we can go the back and forth. I'll try to try to keep it at three minutes or less. Uh, try not to step on each other, but for the most part, back and forth. I'm just here moderating. You sure, sure. Forward. I mean, go ahead, Austin. Uh, listen, I, I I delight in in the in the suffering and the pain of my enemies, and to hear the the lamentations of their women. For example, if you know, if I get a, a video shared with me that shows three robbers 
breaking into my house or if it's breaking into someone's house and, you know, trying to commit an act of aggression and violence and somebody comes out with the AR-15 and, and shoots them all dead, I, I cheer them on. I mean, I, I don't necessarily want that to happen. I wish that it didn't have to happen, but I can celebrate when a moral victory is won when it involves the innocent person using violence to defend themselves against an aggressor. So, and I can't agree that war is horrible and that we should avoid it. But I guess my problem is, and this is where my critique starts, is is that I'm tolerant of criticism of Israel. And I don't necessarily jump to say, oh, both sides are ism, because what I, what I think really is the important part is that we should agree with, and this is the, um, the final part of this piece from uh, Scott Horton's Libertarian Institute, uh, Rothbard's words, where he said, libertarians must stop. Use, what, what's the piece? I'm sorry, could you just tell me it, the name of the piece? It's uh, liber- uh, War Guilt in the Middle East. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know the piece. <laughs> okay, okay, yes. So, yeah. so the final sentence of it, I think, is the most compelling, because he says, libertarians must stop pretending both sides are the same, become relevant, take a moral stance, uh, no, excuse me. I'm sorry. These are my words. I'm sorry. This is the last part. That's This is my uh, my interpretation of Rothbard. But here's where he says, he says, in order to find out which side to any war is more guilty, we have to inform ourselves in depth about the history of that conflict. It takes time and thought. We must take the will. We must become relevant by taking sides through pinning a greater degree of guilt on one side or the other. So what I wish what I wish we could see is ultimately is let's start at that moral point. We talk about the morality of war. Let's start by pinning a greater degree of guilt on one side or the other. All right, time's up. Be, become relevant and then we can have a discussion and debate about what happens on a micro scale. Does that make sure. sense? Yeah, That's sure. I, I mean, did you read the whole piece, Austin, or just that line? Because the whole point that Murray Rothbard is making in that piece is that Israel is the aggressor in the war, and that in most wars, there is one side who's more wrong than the other. And in this war, this was written in the summer of uh, 1967 in a journal called Left and Right. And the point uh, Murray Rothbard was making is that Israel were clearly the aggressors in the conflict against the Palestinians. So I completely agree with what Rothbard was saying there. I think it's a great piece, by the way. I'd highly suggest everybody read it. I, I don't know exactly what the point you're trying to make other than that. And, and for you to say, look, it, you know, we've all seen those videos where someone breaks into someone's house and shots get fired and they run out. And I'll, I'll admit, yeah, I, I like it's probably not the noblest thing, but yes, I take a little bit of pleasure in watching those videos at times too. Probably not if someone's like gruesomely, uh, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, something horrible happens to them. But that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about here is innocent women and children being murdered. And the idea of taking pleasure in that is strikes me as sick. Well, that I don't take pleasure in because I've always been very careful to say that I think it's important for us to take every steps possible to minimize civilian casualties in any conflict. Modern war, the horror of modern war is that those casualties are unavoidable and specifically because Hamas makes it a point to specifically target civilians. And they also so don't does Israel. think... It, that's not true. And I, I mean, I don't know if I could convince you that otherwise, but simply the reason why I would say that that's not true is because they've actually developed munitions for the express purpose of not harming civilians and the purpose of warning them to let them know to evacuate buildings before they blow them up, which isn't, by the way, that isn't required by any laws of war that you let people know where you're going to strike beforehand, although they do do that, which is why I I disagree fundamentally with that point. 
So I think the unfortunately the problem here is is that you know if you're going to look at a conflict such as what happened now there was a ceasefire and no one was shooting at one another until October 7th until Hamas violated the ceasefire. I mean even by like the most strict definition of non-aggression Hamas violated that attacked civilians directly and, and the question is what's a proportional response to that? I mean I think that's probably a better a uh, debate topic for us to go back and forth in and what would we consider to be a proportional response when someone you know violates your sovereignty your national sovereignty and attacks your civilians and murders them directly what, okay. what's proportional to that well let me let me respond to a few of the things you said there number one it's not an opinion that israel uh, uh targets civilians it's it's an objective fact and yes when you cut off the water and electricity to two million people when you bomb buildings that you know are filled with civilians and i don't care you you can say that like oh there's no law that requires them to send a warning before they bomb that building there's lots of laws that require israel to do things that they don't do there's international law that requires you can't use white phosphorus doesn't stop them from doing that so i don't know what you're saying that is that is a clear example objectively of targeting civilians and to say that by a strict definition of the non-aggression principle hamas committed an act of aggression on october 7th well yeah obviously no one's denying that but let's apply that strict uh, uh rule of non-aggression to what israel has been doing to the people of gaza since 1967 at least we could go back well, before then. So there's so it's not as if you can say there was a ceasefire. And I guess kind of Israel, by the way, has violated many ceasefires over the years. But yes, there, there was a ceasefire. But the people of Gaza were living under constant daily aggression by the government of Israel. So this that like, I don't know, this just makes no sense to me. Well, uh, that that is to in their mind, that is an enemy government that they have declared in the charter of Hamas. Uh, an absolute desire to destroy that is in their charter that they have declared war against the jews and What's want to have Likud them eradicated from the river to the sea but i want to make a point i wanted to respond to what you said about israel cutting off their water supply if you look up the independent website al-monitor this is a story from august of 2021 you'll note that hamas has actually banned the creation of water wells in gaza so the pretext of course our our you know our enemy the state is licensing as a means to extort their own citizens but what's interesting of course there are three sources of water in gaza 92 percent of the water is secured from an aquifer six percent of the water that goes to gaza is secured from israel and two percent of that goes through seawater desalinization so i think that you know the problem with the water argument of course is that you know, you're really, you know, making a mountain out of a mole here, here. And I think that the people of Palestine have far more bones to pick with their own terrorist government that they elected in 2006 and have had no election since uh, that is preventing them from being able to seek out water on their own. I don't so know, that, say, it's, I don't know that it's say, Israel's responsibility well, to provide water to the people in Gaza if they're not responsible for it when their own people prevent them from gaining access to it. When when you say Hamas is the government, does that imply that uh, Gaza is a, is a government, is a state? Uh, I would not say that they are a, a formal state as we understand it. They don't have a flag, so that's... that's so they wouldn't really be a states. government then, would they? Well, they're acting in the role of a government, right? No. Oh, they're not? No. By by initiating licensing, they're not acting as a government? No. And and the fact that they're into, they're using intellectual property in order to, they're invoking intellectual property to have an AK-47 facility that they license through Russia 
That's not the role. Of, that's not the role of a government. No, they're the most they're the most powerful gang in an Israeli prison is what they are. And like, no, they're not a government. And when Israel controls the airspace and the water space and the borders and even within Gaza, the border crossings and they control electricity and they control utilities. No, I don't think by any meaningful uh, sense of the word you can say they're clearly not a state. By the way, if they are a state, if they are a government, well, then Israel's in violation of international law by occupying a government. But like, so I, I don't know what you want to say here, but you're uh, again, there's a like Austin, there's well, well, a there's a, hold on, there's a mass murder camp. Israel preventing them from here. gaining access also, to water. Hold on. There's a yeah, mass murder campaign going on here, and you seem to be cheering it on with no sense of feeling for the innocent women and children who are dying. Well, I just, here's the thing, Dave. I don't have an infinite amount of tears to shed for all of the pain and suffering in the world. I'm not some emotional leftist whose appeals to emotion are going to get me crying a tear like the Native American on the side of the road when somebody throws garbage out of the road. I don't have an yeah, infinite We're talking about amount. children being I murdered. Have, I don't have an infinite amount of care to care for every every crime that happens in the world does not have to be laid at the burdens of every individual in the world. My view of this is not one of a micro scale of which you can say tit for tat, this side commits one atrocity, this side commits another atrocity. I'm trying to get people to look at this from a macro view of things and to ask yourself things like, why would Israel want to control their airspace? Why would Israel be in charge of 6% of the water that goes into Gaza? Not 90% of the water, 6% of the water. What, what are the reasons that this has happened? And what are the, what are the, this is a clash of civilizations is essentially what I think. It, it's way more important, Dave, for us to talk about this from a micro, from a macro scale than it is to talk about this from a micro scale because no one wins. I mean, yes, it's terrible that, that they're killing babies and that civilians are being killed. We should do whatever we can to prevent it. And we want to keep the United States out of it and not go to war with Iran and not be funding Israel's defense. I don't agree with any of those things. I don't want American interventionism. But I don't see both sides as being equally culpable for the problems that are happening that were sparked on October 7th with the invasion of the Palestinian Hamas terrorist group into Israel. So I think, again, I don't know that we actually accomplished anything. We don't change anybody's minds. Everybody just digs themselves deeper in. But if we start from the point of looking at this from, again, from a clash of civilizations, I mean, look at it even through the way that the leftists look at it. They look at this as a question of oppressors and oppressed. You seem to agree with this critical theory view of oppressors and oppressed. You're, you're clearly placing the Israelis in a position of being the oppressors. When in reality, the true oppressors are Hamas. They are being oppressed by their own. Hold on. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Hold on. So then you're looking at it through just as much of a critical theory lens as I am. You're saying you're just look, saying I'm the saying other side of the oppressors. At, if we looked at it through that lens, so there you are would such... still be wrong. You would still be wrong, even if no, you were to I use wouldn't your be. critical no, theory, no, woke I... version of of foreign there's policy nothing, there's nothing what well, listen austin this that is, is critical theory defined no, looking at everything let's, through let's a series let austin of finish this point and then you can right. reply the definition of critical theory is to view all of human interactions between the oppressors and those who are oppressed and we have this problem here in the united states and that's why these college campuses are so inflamed that is why that is why it's a mistake it's a mistake to look at the israel hamas conflict through one of oppressors or oppressed but if you did even if you did it would still be wrong to say that Israel are the oppressors in the situation versus Hamas. All right, okay, go ahead. I gave you extra time because uh, Dave did cut in a little bit, but go ahead, Dave. 
Okay, my apologies for that. Um, okay, so first off, there's a lot more to critical theory than just looking at things through oppressors and, and oppressors. But, but that's part of it. Well, hold on. All right, let me just finish. I got a couple seconds in there. Guys, okay, so it keeps up. So, I'm going to have to meet you guys yeah, until the time's uh, up. <laughs> listen, so yes, looking at all of history and every interaction as oppressor versus oppressed is stupid. It, never acknowledging that anybody is ever oppressed or that there are ever oppressors or that, like the idea of looking at governments violating natural rights of people, that's not a critical race theory leftist thing to do. That's a libertarian thing to do. And no, I'm sorry. Look, the idea that you're saying, if we're going to, even if we were going to look through it at, at that level, that it's clearly uh, Hamas is the oppressor. You're telling me that this gang in an Israeli prison, who Israel, by the way, supported through their entire rise, Israel is a huge part of the reason why they won that election uh, 18 years ago or whenever it was, that somehow I have to look at them as the only oppressor, but Israel won a war in 1967 and therefore gets to dominate these people forever? And I'm not allowed to look at them as being an oppressive force at all. Look, Austin, you can run away from this as much as you want to. Israel is in the process of mass murdering innocent civilians. And if you don't think that registers on the, forget the, the let's not use the leftist re uh, rhetoric. Let's use our rhetoric. They are violating the natural rights in the most gruesome way of a large group of innocent civilians. And that's wrong. And yes, that's good that you don't want to inter intervene in that part of the world, but I don't understand why you've gone on this path of attacking libertarians who are the best on this issue and cheering on what Israel's doing. Well, I'm not saying you you said you don't have to have all you don't you don't have enough tears to cry for every innocent people, all the innocent people around the world dying. I don't. You don't have to cheer it on. No, no, I don't have to cheer on. I'm, but the thing is, is that you're you're moving goalposts because I'm not no. cheering on the death of innocents. What I'm cheering on is the right of the Israeli people to remove the terrorist threat that is threatening their civilian lives. I'm not cheering on the death of civilians. I'm actually doing the opposite. I'm saying that it's wrong to kill civilians, and it's Hamas who targets them directly and intentionally. And I reject your premise that Israel is doing is attacking civilians intentionally. But here's it's the a thing. Fact. But it's I'm a almost, fact. I'm, I'm almost done. Guys, I, I just want to say that your description of Gaza as a prison, I think, is also another situation where you're, you're using incorrect terminology to describe these things. What prisons do, do we have in the United States where you can actually get a work permit and leave from? Uh, that you aren't actually being forced to do so to go outside and work from. You know, you cannot, as an Israeli, go into the Gaza Strip and work there. You can, as a Palestinian, get a work permit and go and leave there to go to Israel. If you're a homosexual in Palestine, you can leave and go to Israel and you can seek asylum in their country. That doesn't sound like any definition of a prison from my definition, right? Uh, to me, a, a prison is something that you can't actually leave from. So I think your terminology is incorrect in there. But I did appreciate that that you noted that my point here of critical theory as seeing everything through a lens of oppressors and oppressed it is a part of cr critical theory. But you say, but critical theory is more than that. Okay, well, that's fine. But again, you're moving the goalposts here. You need to give me my point, as you did very subtly when I talked about that is a portion of critical theory. You say, okay, but it is, it's fine. It's libertarian theory too. Okay, that's fine. But again, what another view of this that is a part of critical theory is to look at this as the argument that I made earlier of the problem of seeing both sides as morally equivalent. If you look at things from the micro perspective, you will see them as morally equivalent. If you look at things from the view 
on the ground, you will see this many dead babies on that side and that many dead babies on that side. And, and, and they're both horrible and they're wrong and it's terrible. But if you don't take a macro view of things, you, may, you, you can be guilty of making the same mistake that people make when they are uncritical of both sides. And I think that you can be crit crit critical of both sides. And there can be criticisms that are leveled of Israel. I'm tolerant of that. I believe I'm an American nationalist, so I believe in America first. And I don't think that our taxpayer dollars should be spent going to Israel and getting us further involved in this conflict. Now, where you, you might say, oh, well, uh, there's a heresy on this. I could say maybe I am a heretic to a pure non-interventionist view. I do think that some American resources might be set aside to free American hostages that are located in Gaza right now. And if there's any kind of support role that the United States can play for something like that, that I do believe is a proper role of government. I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that of the American hostages that are there. Is it, are you of the view, and, and I'm honestly curious, I, this isn't an accusation, but do you believe that just caveat emptor, buyer beware if you go overseas, you know, if you get captured, fuck them, is, what's your view? Um, well, well, let me respond to a few of the things you said there. I, I did not concede anything, Austin. The idea that you will say that in some cases somebody is oppressed does not at all mean that you're buying into the critical theory view that all of all of history can be defined by oppressor versus oppressed. Because obviously, people who subscribe to critical theory, as well as many other things, would say that about every situation, whether you're a worker going to work for a boss, that is oppressor versus oppressed. So it's ridiculous to apply that to everything, it's equally ridiculous to apply that to nothing and say that nobody is ever the oppressor and nobody is ever the oppressed. That is a mirror version that is equally as stupid as critical theory. Now, the idea that uh, this, this term of like, the, um, like a, a moral equivocation. Um, nobody's said that in this argument so far. I've never said the two sides are equal. I'm saying there are crimes on both sides. And in in fact, what the piece that you were uh, that you cited, Murray Rothbard is arguing that there's quite a bit more crimes on the Israeli side, and that they are really the aggressors in this. And I I'm sorry, but to just ignore the history of what happened in this region, I don't think serves any type of understanding here. The reality of the situation is that the entire creation of the state of Israel was, was done off the backs of driving Palestinians off their land, that the, the Jews owned about less than 10% of the land in 1947 when the UN recommended that the Jews should get 56% of the land. And the Jews accepted that deal, and the Arabs rejected that deal. And then the Jews drove 750,000 Arabs off of their land into, and they took 80% of the land. And then in 1967, they launched a preemptive war, and they won it, and they took control of 100% of the land. And they've had it ever since. And so if we're going to look at this conflict and go, why is it? Look, this is basic libertarian stuff. Leave all the lefty garbage out of it. This is Ron Paul 101. It's not justifying the actions of Hamas, but you do understand that these are people who have grown up under a brutal occupation by the Israelis and that they've witnessed um, uh, horrific things happening to family and friends of theirs their entire lives. And that's what makes it so easy to recruit these people to essentially go out on a suicide mission, which is essentially what October 7th was. All these guys know they're going to die and a lot more people around them are going to die. Um, but we ought to ask ourselves the question of why they'd be willing to do that. And if there's any role for any seconds. type of intervention under like a libertarian theory, it would be to try to promote peace, to try to promote negotiations. And, you know, that would be what I would say. Yes, if there's a role for America, in a perfect world, America doesn't intervene at all. I'm an ANCAP. In a perfect world, there's no government. 
Um, but yeah, if there's a role, it would be to try to negotiate the release of our hostages. Okay, so um, I, I think I could agree with you on on some of the things you were saying there, Dave. I'm trying to um, you know decide what I want to go after here first. If there is a role for American intervention, did you say that like part of it should be for negotiation of the re release of hostages? So you do think that that could be a legitimate, if if somewhat interventionist role, proper role of there's the United nothing, States government? There's nothing governments do that's legitimate, but it would be preferable to okay. just funding Israel's war. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I, I can't disagree with you on that. So, I mean, I, I, if I had a bone to pick on that one, I think it would be too small. So, I mean, there's probably a lot of areas of agreement when it comes to things like that. But I, I guess... You say that, uh, I, my question for you would be on this then, is do you think that if, I mean, would you concede at least on a moral level, a macro scale, that the conflict between these two civilizations is one of a more liberal order versus a more authoritarian one? Is that is that fair to say or not? No, that it's it's very incomplete to say that. Okay. Um, so, I mean, look, there, as you have with lots of these different uh, uh, states, there are States like, let's say, North Korea, who is brutally horrible to their own people, but really doesn't do anything to the rest of the world. And then there are states like, say, the United States of America, who you couldn't say are worse to their own people than North Korea are, but are far worse to the rest of the world than North Korea is. And so Israel, yes, would I rather live in Israel or in Gaza? I'd rather live in Israel. Is it a more, are there more freedoms afforded to you if you live in Israel than Gaza? Yes, there's more freedoms. A huge part of that is because of what Israel does to Gaza. So no, I think this like, this reductionist kind of oversimplified, is it a liberal order versus a non-liberal order? The, the complaints that we have with the government of Israel are explicitly and I say liberal in the classical liberal sense of the word, in the best sense of the word, are right. explicitly, explicitly the anti-liberal things that they do, violating okay. the natural rights of other people, no, acquiring no, 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 territory. No, hold on, let you're, me just finish. Acquiring okay. territory through war and and dominating a group of people for what is almost sixty years now. Well, I do believe that in a right of conquest. So if you initiate a conflict, you might lose your land because I do believe in a concept of restorative justice. What if you? Well, so okay, all, but that's well, that's my turn. It's my turn. It's we my might turn. all agree with that. Have, that doesn't. Let, but let, the thing is, is you say that like this is a reductionist view, but your view is also reductionist because you only lay the blame at the feet for the reasons why these terrorists have commit these attacks as they because they're in a prison because of what Israel is doing to to it. You're actually removing the agency of the Palestinian people themselves who do overwhelmingly support the actions of these Hamas terrorists. So you, you're taking away their agency for, for on that part, and you're also reducing it entirely to the behavior of outside groups. And you're forgetting the fact that, that they do hate Israel for their freedoms. They do attack uh, outside countries because they believe in liberal worldviews. You don't see dance parties, raves, like the ones that were attacked in Gaza. And they the reason why they do that, that they attack those kinds of places, because they see that as part of a liberal world order, which they reject. And, uh, you know, a good example, you say, if you're talking about the history of this, you were talking about 1948, is when you, uh, I really love this story from when Thomas Jefferson had to kill the shit out of some Islamic terrorists of his day, because he wanted to parlay with them. He wanted to have good relationships with them. In his inaugural address, he says, we want to have peace with all nations. We don't want to have uh, an interventionist foreign policy. But he realized, of course, that these people were irrational and that they were going to be impressing American merchant seamen 
into slavery in the, at the Barbary Coast. And of course, the result of that was the Barbary Wars. But I think there's a fascinating little tidbit from history that we could all learn from in regards to why the Islamic world hates us so much. It's, we had nothing, the United States had nothing to do with the Crusades in the early 1800s. We had nothing to do with the, the wars of intervention of Europe. We were a new nation. We had nothing to do with, with uh, any of the, the conflicts that the British and the French had engaged in in the Mediterranean. But we were still being attacked by the Barbary pirates in, in Tripoli. So when they met with the ambassador of the, uh, the Barbary pirates in London, John Adams went and met with, these, uh, with the Barbary pirates representative, their diplomat, and they asked, why? Why are you attacking us? Why are you doing this to us? And the response to that was, well, it's because the Quran says that we can, because you are infidel, because you are Muslim. Uh, you're not Muslim, because you don't agree with us, because our holy book says that we can do this to you. And before we say, oh, well, the seconds. Bible says, I'm almost done. The Bible says terrible, do terrible things. The Talmud says terrible things. The difference between, uh, all th I find all of the claims of all religions, the metaphysical claims of all religions to be equally false. But not all religions are equally anti-libertarian. Some religions are more libertarian than others. You are a secular Jew, Dave. I prefer Judaism to my own base religion because, of course, my religion is more evangelical. It tends to be a little bit more aggressive, and it demands, you know, it, it demands crusades to some extent. But no religion demands more crusades than radical Islam. So it's it's a mistake to claim that the only reason why they attack us is simply because of intervention or what someone else is doing. It removes their agency, and it also it. it 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 doesn't it doesn't look at the underpinnings of the religious conflict that's part of this as well. All right, go ahead. Dave. Okay, yeah, th this is just a total straw man and not at all responding to what I said. This is this is goofy. I mean, it's like look if if uh, if a husband comes home and finds his wife in bed with uh, another man and he murders both of them. And I said, you know, her cheating was a large contributing factor to why he murdered her. That doesn't remove agency from him. It doesn't justify what he did. Obviously, these people on October 7th had agency. This is just silly. I'm just saying that this is a giant contributing factor to it. So this is, I, it, it's very strange to me that anyone who comes out of the libertarian world would ever not understand this very basic point. It was go read Harry Brown, when will we, when will we learn? Go listen to the Ron Paul Giuliani moment. The idea, if you're going to take this view, then you would have to say that they were removing agency from Al-Qaeda. But that's ridiculous. Of course, that's not what they were doing at all. It's just saying that, look, we can look at the conditions that lead to these attacks. And yes, if you see a group of people who are being dominated by another nation for almost 60 years, and then they come over and kill a bunch of their citizens, you go... That domination might have a little bit something to do with the fact that they came over and killed those people. As for trying to, you know, it's funny because it seems like, you know, you don't want to talk so much about the history of Israel and Palestine, but you love to go to like the Barbary Wars. Um, I don't think something that really should be celebrated. Uh, I believe it was the first, I might be wrong about this. Maybe it was the second, but it might have been the second undeclared war. Um, in U.S. history, and it was done by Thomas Jefferson, who went to war without a declaration of war, which was, I, you could certainly argue, laid the precedent down for for going to war without a declaration, um, if, if, seeing as how Thomas Jefferson himself, the author of the Declaration of Independence, even violated his own constitution. Um, and Look, there's, I don't know, there, there, I, we could go into the history of the Barbary Wars, but I think it's probably more productive to just stay on, on this topic. I don't know what exactly the connection is, like, 
the Northern African pirates have they're all Muslims or something? Well, no, but I mean, in 1801, let me just finish my point. And the, look, this idea of like the, the, you're going to blame radical Islam, like there's a lot of problems with radical Islam. Um, and perhaps it is even more anti-libertarian than some of these other religions. But if you're talking about what's anti-libertarian, what you'd have to talk about is what violates more people's natural rights. And there are a whole lot of religious views that maybe the Likud party highest members don't actually hold, but certainly a large percentage of the Israeli population holds. I'm sure George Bush and Lindsey Graham and all these guys don't actually believe that the Jews need to control Israel in order for Jesus to come back. But there's tens of millions of evangelical Christians who do believe that. So there's just a lot seconds. of guilt to go around here. And I think it's it's um, unfair to point blame just at Islam, particularly when the world empire, the U.S., has done everything in its power for at least 50 years to promote and fund and prop up the most radical forms of Islam. Okay. Uh, so I'm, I'm glad that you said uh, what violates more people's natural rights, rights there, because in some ways you're sort of conceding to a, a rather con consequentialist view there, right, rather than a more absolutist one. But I think, of course, what matters is intent. If you're looking at something from a matter of just pure numbers, well, what you're really looking at there is the trolley problem. Would you kill one person to save five people? Is it more moral to save more lives than to save fewer lives? And, and I think that we can go down a rabbit hole with that. But I'd rather uh, focus on the um, the analogy that you brought up of the husband and wife when it comes to murder. Right? He comes home, he finds his wife is cheating, right, and he commits murder there. Because I actually think that opens up another can of worms, or at least a beef that I have with libertarianism, uh, when it comes to foreign policy in regards to the, the concept of conflation, essentially the, the use of the terminology when it comes to mass murder, everything is mass murder, this is mass murder, that is mass murder. But at actual legal definitions of murder, there are differences between your example when you said he catches his wife cheating in bed, he kills his wife, that is murder, but we don't judge that murder in the same way that we do a, pro a planned or premeditated murder. So what am I trying to say here? Well, what I'm trying to say is that there's a difference between the planned and premeditated murder of civilians, which Hamas engages in as part of their legitimate war strategy, and what might be considered in a worst case scenario in any court of law as what might be involuntary manslaughter, which is the result of an accidental killing rather than direct intentional killing, which is why I don't see a moral equivocation. We shouldn't morally equivoc equivocate between these two sides. So I wonder if, do you agree that there is a difference between forms of killing, meaning there's murder one, murder two, voluntary manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter. You do see that there is a difference between intent. Intent matters, does it not? Yeah, sure. So Austin, I mean, listen, you're just objectively wrong in this breakdown. So just hear me out on this, dude, because this is just like there's not even a debate here. You're just objectively wrong. So let me just you're con so there's three different things. And yes, obviously, there's differences in this. But let's just say there's like a justified killing, right? Someone comes at you with a knife and you shoot him. It's not a crime. You killed somebody, but it's not a crime. There's manslaughter. Typically, there's two different types of manslaughter. There's sometimes, in, depending on the jurisdiction, it's manslaughter one, manslaughter two, or voluntary, involuntary manslaughter. So like voluntary manslaughter would be like you beat the shit out of a guy. He ends up dying. You didn't necessarily mean to kill him, but you beating him up ended up killing him. Involuntary manslaughter would be like um, you're drag racing and you hit a guy 
You weren't trying to hurt anybody at all, but your reckless actions led towards somebody dying. Then then there's murder, first degree, second degree, third degree, right? Okay. If I, let's just say, if I, even let's say there's somebody who I had a justified killing claim at, you know, they're coming at me with a knife or whatever, and they're in a building, and I know, I know that there's a ton of children in that building, so I blow the building up. That is murder in the first degree. Israel has murdered all of these people in this war over the last few weeks. In any court of law, that's what you would be charged as. Premeditated, cold-blooded murder in the first degree. Your, Your example does not hold. And in fact, if you really want to get legal with this, when you're blowing them up with bombs, the fact that you made a bomb would be prima facie Evidence of premeditation, murder in the first degree. This is just objectively the truth. It is not. It is not. Hold on. Hold on one second. Hold on one second. It is not. No, no, no. I'm just legally right. Any lawyer listening to this, I'm, I'm legally right. If you drop a bomb, hold on, Austin, you're muted. So let me just finish my point, and then you can talk. If you drop a bomb on a building, and guess what? Legally speaking, it doesn't matter if you go, but I warned you to leave first. It, that is murder in the first degree if you know that innocent civilians are going to die there. I'll, one more say. When Obama drops a drone on a wedding, when Obama has a drone bombing campaign where 98% of the people who die are innocent civilians, and he knows that, and he continues to do that, Obama murdered those people. When Israel drops bombs on buildings that they know have civilians, even if they gave a very polite, I warned you before they did it, which they don't always do, they murdered all those people. And likewise, I will say, what, what Hamas did when they invaded Israel and pulled off that terrorist attack, they also murdered all those people. It's murder in the first degree across the board. And that's a fact. Go ahead. Go ahead. Am I unmuted? Yeah, you're unmuted. Okay. Uh, so these are lies, and your position here is morally bankrupt. Uh, it, I think this the problem, of course, comes down to the foundations, which are the non-aggression principle in this one. And I think that the non-aggression principle has become the non-retaliation principle. Because, yes, it does matter what happens when it comes to intent if you tell someone to get out of the way if you're trying to stop someone who's trying to actively murder you or kill you. If someone places themselves between an innocent citizen or an innocent civilian and is trying to kill you at the exact same time, you're not morally responsible if you accidentally hit the civilian. The person who placed themselves deliberately between yourself and the civilian is the person who is morally responsible. I have no moral responsibility to commit suicide. If someone puts themselves up in a children's hospital and I do everything I can to try and avoid the deaths of civilians in that hospital, but the only way that I can survive or protect the lives of myself, my crew, my family, or what have you, is to fire back and prevent that threat from coming at you. What you're essentially advocating for is for people to be required to commit suicide if they're not able to take the, the tactics and use the tactics that are necessary to be able to defend themselves. These are the unfortunate, horrible, awful realities of war that I would prefer that we would not have to deal with. I wish that this wasn't the case or this wasn't the reality. But I think that this is why 
a, a big problem that the American people see with libertarians and why our movement gets, gets smaller and smaller, because the idealism, which I identify with, my heart swells with pride. I would love to live in the world that Dave Smith is talking about, where you, there would ev- never be a civilian casualty in a conflict. I wish we could go back to what it was like back in the 1800s when armies, if they were going to have a war, fine, go out and go out like the Napoleonic Wars and kill each other out in the fields. And if you're going to do that and we can't stop you, then at least at a, at a minimum, go out and do it somewhere where there aren't going to be civilians killed. But that is not how modern wars are fought. I wish that they weren't, but they are. And the reason why they are is because terrorists that operate in a modern war conflict, they use civilians as human shields. Israel uses rockets to protect their civilians. Hamas uses civilians to protect their rockets. There's no moral equivalency here, and people are not required to commit suicide and to continue to allow there to be attacks on them because they might accidentally hit a civilian if it is in their own self-defense, which I argue that it is. Yeah. Um, so listen, I, I don't know. There's a lot of things to, to get in there. My my movement isn't stagnating. Like my followers aren't stagnating. I've been gr- getting a bigger and bigger audience every year. Um, so I don't know exactly where you just say, well, because you take this this line of thinking that this is why the movement isn't growing or something like that. Um, look, I the you said what I was saying was lying. What I'm doing is describing what actually happens. You're repeating. Pro- but listen, I'm Jewish. My grandfather was a Holocaust survivor. My mother lived on a kibbutz uh, when, when she was younger. I know all of the pro-Israeli talking points. I Believe me, I have a memorized down pack. This Israel uses their rockets to protect their people. and their, No, Israel uses their bombs to kill innocent Palestinians. That's a fact. It's not an opinion. That's what happens. When you say I'm requiring people to commit suicide, no, I'm not. Not bombing a building full of innocent uh, um, Palestinians because you suspect a Hamas leader in there doesn't require any Israeli to commit suicide. You're using a scenario as if a gun was pointed at their head. Any lawyer listening to this, please try to argue with me that blowing up a building with lots of innocent people when you know there's innocent people in there because there's one killer who you're trying to get is not murder in the first degree. Tell me if any individual did that, they would not be charged with murder in the first degree, premeditated, cold-blooded murder. I'm not trying to say, look, we'd all like to live in a world where there's no innocent casualties like sure i'm not denying the real world i'm describing the real world and then saying there is a morality to that we'd all like to live in a world where there's no murders or rapes but if i say murder and rape is wrong that doesn't mean i'm living in a fantasy world i'm describing reality and then we can say we can all accept we'll probably never live in a world where there's no murder and no rape but if we recognize that it's wrong then what we should be supporting should at least be the policy that will result in the least of them. We should at least be supporting what can reduce those. And giving Israel a blank check and using this this kind of like, uh, as you said earlier, well, this is a battle of civilizations, and they're the barbarians, and they're the civilized ones, and therefore they have a right to do whatever they want to these people. That leads to a world with much more innocent people dying, not less. But they are barbarians and they are fighting a a battle of civilizations. And if you do look at this from a macro scale, then you will say that it is important for us to stand on the sides of states or governments or cultures that are superior to those that are inferior. And the superior cultures are the ones that are in line with more libertarian principles. And the ones that are inferior are those that are not aligned with libertarian principles. And we should look at the world this way. And we should not try and, and look at the world in a morally relativistic way as if 
as if everybody is just the same and all cultures are equal. And I'm not necessarily saying that you do that, although I do think some people do. Uh, and, and I think it's important to take a stand first and what is good and what is right and what is true. And then we can talk about the tactics of the rules of war. And I'm glad that you appreciate that it's true, that it is we are not going to live in a world where it is perfect and we can completely entirely avoid all civil, civilian casualties. And we should do everything that we can to support the side that does have those kinds of rules, that does engage in roof knock bombing to let people know that, so that there are going to be bombings in their area. We should, we should say, okay, well, this is the side, at least they're the good guys in this conflict, and you seem to be unwilling to do so, right, to say that these are the good guys, and it, that's fine. You can pick another side if you want or, or say, I, I wash my hands of both of them. That's your right to do so. My whole argument this entire time is to say we should stand on the side of civilization. We should stand against barbarism. We should stand against people who stand against the principles that we believe in, right? We believe in the Enlightenment. And the problem with, excuse me, the problem with the Islamic world is that, it, of course, it didn't have the luxury of coming into contact with the Enlightenment. And if you look at, you know, Judaism, for example, you're a secular Jew, David, right? You don't believe, at least from my understanding, you don't believe in a God. I, I, I do. I believe in pray. God. Yes. Oh, you believe in God. Okay. So, yeah. so. You're not a practicing or observant Jew or anything like I'm not, that. I'm right? not, I don't particularly, yeah, I'm not a very religious person, but I'm right. Regardless, I mean, the Quran says that you can be killed, right? Not necessarily because you're Jewish, you know, culturally or that you believe in God, but just because you're not, you're a kufar, right? As am I, right? We're all infidels and we're all Muslims and they can dispense with their lives as they see fit, right? So I think that the problem is, is that while we have these kinds of worldviews, and, and I would be critical as well of the dispensationalist view of, of American Christians who are trying to get us uh, involved in the Middle East for their views because they do want to spark Armageddon. And I, that's why I do see you know, Christianity as a, and Islam as leading us into these, these end times revelations. And I think that's problematic. And I think that you know, people, like, people like John McCain and, and Lindsey Graham, they play on those, on those evils. But let's say it's evil. Like, let's agree that that's wrong. Let's talk about radical Islam. You're not a neocon because you think that radical Islam is an anti-libertarian worldview that contributes to terrorism and contributes to statism because essentially ISIS wants to be like Saudi Arabia. They wanted to be like Saudi Arabia. They wanted to build towards statehood. And I think, you know, especially if you're an anarchist, the last thing that you want is a two-state solution where Hamas might actually become a state. I know we were talking about that earlier. That's, that's the last thing that we should want, right? So, so I, I think that uh, it's important to get the moral question of picking a side out there first. I, I wish you would do that. I, I don't know if you have or not, but you seem to be, I, I'm not sure if you're taking the All third right. side in this, taking the other side, or, you know, All trying right, to split the baby here on this one. But I, I think that's a mistake. Um, Go ahead, Dave. Okay, so I'm on the side of innocent, nonviolent people, and I'm against violent governments and violent non-government actors, which I would consider Hamas to be. That's the side that I'm on. And I think there's an obvious contradiction here in, in your worldview, Austin. And so if you go, hey, look, I'm on the side of the civilization that's more advanced or more liberal or respects natural rights more. Well, yes. look, there's no question that the United States of America was a more enlightened society than Iraq was in 2003. And you know what? Some of our guys even dropped leaflets before Operation Shock and Awe. But what America was doing to Iraq was wrong. We were the bad guys. 
in that war. Because look, here's the contradiction. Yeah, we were. Here's the contradiction there. If you even debate whether America were the bad guys for invading a country that posed no threat to us based off lies and killing a million people there and displacing 10 million more, I mean, I don't even know what to say to you, dude. Then it's like, here's the problem. You're saying this society is better because we don't have the the barbarianism of this other society. But what you're defending is the most barbaric act that we could possibly commit, dropping explosion, uh, explosives on innocent people. So the, you're caught in this contradiction here. And yes, it might be true that some societies are more advanced than other societies. Again, though, you're ignoring kind of the other part of this. And it's not necessarily that this makes you a neocon, but it does seem like you're kind of doing their bidding when you ignore the fact that if you have such a problem with Hamas, then you really should have a problem with the fact that it was an Israeli strategy to prop up Hamas. If you have a problem with Wahhabism, then you should really have a problem with the fact that the United States of America intentionally promoted Wahhabism for decades. If you have a problem with Al-Qaeda or ISIS, then you should have a problem with the fact that our governments were funding and arming and training these groups. So, yeah, if you want to just say they're all animals, this entire group of people, you've decided they're all savages. And therefore, I guess I'm left to assume they have no more natural rights. The the two million people of Gaza, we've just decided they're all they're on the side of the barbaric people and Israel are the civilized ones. So they have no natural rights. OK, OK. But then the fact that you're still going to go, the thing that makes me the good guy is I respect natural rights. Do you see where you've lost the plot? You've completely contradicted yourself now because the most barbaric thing you could do far more than having a, a, a religious um, totalitarian society is start exploding people to death, which is what's happening right now. All right, real quick, real quick. Uh, uh, one second. I just want to let yeah. the audience know about I'm probably going to give this five, maybe 10 minutes top more, and then we're going to go into questions. So uh, maybe one, two, top three or four uh, more back and forth. Uh, so go ahead, Austin. Right, right. So, no, obviously, I didn't support the invasion of Iraq. But I think that the problem here lies in not being able to entertain a thought without also accepting it. In other words, what I think you need some neocon friends, Dave, you need to hear ideas from people that you disagree with, so that you can understand why what may be an incorrect strategy may not be a bad strategy overall. What might not work in this scenario might work underneath another another scenario or other conditions. So for example, let, again, let's entertain an idea without necessarily accepting it. Going back to, I know you don't like this, but going back to the Barbary Wars, before we were killing the Islamic pirates, we were paying the Islamic pirates. And one has to ask the question, you know, if they're committing you know, attacks against us, should we always resort to armed conflict immediately? Well, they didn't think that we should. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson sat down and talked it out, and they said to themselves, well, at this point in time, the cost of us to raise a navy and to uh, to go out into the Middle East and to send an army into war against the pirates, it costs less for us at this point in time to just give them the payments, right? So let's entertain the thought that it's possible that the neoconservative policies that you are rightly criticizing to a degree do have some merit in terms of strategy, in terms of a larger war strategy. So understanding the rules of war, the laws of war, or battle strategy will, I think, make us better libertarians because we'll understand why 
John Adams didn't immediately send the fleet that didn't exist, of course, because they had to raise the fleet, the fleet to fight them. But the question just came down to economics. At some point, the cost of paying off the Barbary pirates was higher than if they would just go ahead and create a navy and go and fight and kill all of the Barbary pirates. So when you've listed off the strategies of, for example, you know, Israel funding Hamas, this is what I'm, I'm alluding to here, or uh, uh, the United States funding the Mujahideen, for example, while I may not agree with those strategies, it's not to say that it's not a legitimate strategy, because you know, it, would it be better if someone is destined to try and kill you, if they want to kill you, or just pay me ransom money, you may not be strong enough necessarily to fight back. If somebody says, if the highwayman says, your money or your life, you're probably going to give him your wallet if you don't have a gun or you're not capable of defending yourself until the day comes when you are capable of defending yourself. When you when you say, OK, yeah, you've taken a million and a half Anglos as slaves, you, you, you've, you've committed acts of, of violence and aggression, and I couldn't kill you yet, but I am going to kill you now because before I was paying you and that was a strategy that was legitimate in order to avoid an armed conflict, but now it's time for war. And so I think that while I don't endorse the invasion of Iraq or I don't endorse you know, these neocon views, I think it's a mistake to at least not accept that these are legitimate war strategies and they have been successful, even if they haven't been successful in the recent past. Wrong, right? How do you feel? Um, well, I'd start by saying I think you need less neocon friends. Um, but uh, I, I listen, I've, I've, I have known plenty of neocons. I've read a ton of neocon literature, Strauss and uh freaking kagan and uh Podhoritz and i might be pronouncing that wrong but all these guys um yeah i think that if you're gonna make the argument that it's like a cost benefit analysis or something like that well then okay i guess october 7th really lets you know what the cost benefit analysis was for uh bb netanyahu uh explicitly supporting hamas for all these years and man to support them and then fail to protect your own people on that day that guy should be forced to go live in gaza for the rest of his life um it, it, look in the example with the barbary wars I don't know. I'd have to, I'd love to see like I don't even know if any historian has done this, but if you'd really go like measure the cost benefit analysis, I know that the reason why America was paying off these northern african pirates for the beginning is because that was the tradition of the Europeans, like the French and the British, they all just paid them off. If you wanted to sail. Now, just to be clear, from a libertarian perspective, like I'm not arguing that like those North African pirates had homesteaded the entire Mediterranean Sea or whatever. Like I don't think they had a right to do that. Um I think it was just but at least in that example, and this is what I think libertarians should care about, is that the pirates were the aggressors. Now, after the Barbary Wars were over, did it actually cost more than it would have cost to just pay them off? I don't know. I'd be interested to see if there's any historian who's actually like run the numbers on that. I'd kind of suspect it probably would have cost less to just pay them off and in terms of uh, money and certainly lives. But regardless, they were the aggressors. So I could at least say Thomas Jefferson had a right to go to war with them, although he needed to declare a formal declaration through Congress, seeing as how he's Thomas fucking Jefferson. But um, uh, regardless of that, in the war in Iraq, the United States of America was clearly the aggressor. And in terms of what's happened to the Palestinian people, Israel has been the aggressor. And so I think that's really what libertarians would look at in a conflict like this. And, you know, you could say this neocon policy worked out once in 1801, um, which I don't know if you could really call it. I wouldn't call Thomas Jefferson a neocon. Um, I, 
I'd like to see a more recent example of where one of these neocon policies has actually worked out. In the oh, the, the fall of the Soviet Union, for example. So in funding the Mujahideen in Afghanistan, Ronald Reagan outspent the Soviet Union and actually helped to bring about the collapse because of the back and forth between the Russians who are fighting against okay. our fighters. And it worked. And it, and it helped so to if, collapse. Even if you're going to say, them. Let, if you're gonna say let's Let's and imagine. I, and I'm not saying it's the right thing to do. I'm saying entertain the thought okay, right, fine. before accepting it. But if you're going to claim, which first off, it's way oversimplified to claim that the war in Afghanistan, and when I say the war in Afghanistan, I mean the Soviet war in Afghanistan in 1979, 1980. Uh, if you're going to say that that is the reason the Soviet Union fell, I think we would probably also agree there were some pricing issues in their whole economic structure, and there were there were a lot of other issues. that. So, but I'll, I'll say that was a contributing factor in it too. So if you want to count that as the benefit, then sure, let's count that as the benefit. Now let's look at the costs. The costs were that we trained Osama bin Laden on how to lure a superpower into a war in Afghanistan to bankrupt them. The costs are the are 9-11. The costs are the war in Afghanistan, the war in Iraq, the 30,000 uh, military members who have blown their brains out, the $6 trillion that we've wasted in these wars, and the, con the complete crumbling of the United States of America. So I would be careful before we count that as a neocon victory. Well, the right then the right response, of course, would have been to execute Osama bin Laden after the fact, because then he's no longer useful to us. And if you would read The Prince and Machiavelli, there's a classic example of this, of the prince of him sending out someone to do his bidding and then turning around and placing the blame for everything on him, which is whether we like it or not, Dave, these are the strategies that are being used against us. And one of my, and, and I know it's a small beef, but it's a beef is that, too many libertarians don't understand the enemy's tactics that they use against us and understand why they are effective. And they are legitimate as a law of war, whether or not we agree with them or would like them to be used, we better understand these ideologies if we want to counteract them. So for example, knowing that if Osama bin Laden was, was committed to attacking the United States, and he did, he wrote, I've got a, the date here somewhere in his letter of why he uh, attacked the United States. I thought we might get into it. Maybe we will in the questions and answers or not. But, but of course, if he was intent on attacking the United States after the fact, and we had trained him in doing so, you say it's wrong. You know, we could you know debate about quibble about that. It was a successful strategy against the Soviets as a microcosm of the larger you know conflict between the United States. Pricing was obviously the biggest biggest thing, but this the war in Af uh, Afghanistan didn't help. But the question is, is like what should then have been done? with Osama bin Laden it, at that point, if he then turned around and declared war on the United States and claimed that he wanted to attack us and someone who was a friend before us. Because I think what when I were talking about the moral time machine is, you know, I frequently, every Wednesday I have the judge come on and we talk about these issues back and forth. And last week he said something that was really interesting to me. And I hear this a lot from my libertarian friends is we say, oh, well, if the libertarian policy had been there in the first place, then none of this would have ever happened. That's true. And I agree with you. And we, sh you know, I, I would have loved to have had the libertarian policy implemented in the 1980s. We would not be in the problems that we have today, but we still have to deal with the world as it is today. If we were to say, let's say we get elected, we get, you know, there's 150 Thomas Masseys in Congress, hooray, right? But Tom, but Osama bin Laden is still alive and he's still intent on, you know, you know, killing us here in the United States and committing acts of terrorism. And he's writing letters in the papers like he did back in the 90s saying he was going to kill us. There has to be some kind of a strategy that even libertarians have to deal with terrorist actors that is 
at least somewhat in line with our principles, if that's the constitutional process, as you, you've you brought up, you kind of spoke warmly of Thomas Jefferson, he should have known to use the constitutional process, but that, of course, you could go seconds. back and say, you could say, oh, well, you know, just because something's legal doesn't mean that it's moral, right? Lots of things that are constitutional are immoral, like the income tax, for example, right? So there's a problem there, but I, I don't want to get into that. But we should have good war tactics. I think if we spend too long only trying to say, well, how can we stop war? I think we miss George Washington's important lesson. If you want peace, prepare for war. I wish more libertarians would learn how to fight and would spend time in martial arts. I've been that's, punched that's in the time. face enough. I've been punched in the face enough to know what it's like. And it does bring your ego down a few notches. You get choked out in jujitsu. I don't know if you, you take classes before. I'm sure you probably did when you hung out with Joe Rogan. Right. But it's important for us to learn how to fight and fight a just war. If a just war comes to our doorstep, I think that there isn't enough conflict. There isn't enough discussion about that. And it, you're not a neocon because you know how to fight tactically a war and win a war if you have to. Okay. All right. That's time. I mean, we got to get to I questions, just, Austin. Uh, well, we're, let, we're, let, let me just have a response Dave, to, uh, to that. I'll try to be quick. Okay, but I just yeah, find this quick. to be a whole uh, yeah. like so it's such a straw man. Like, yeah, nobody's saying you're a neocon if you learn how to fight. I also encourage people to learn how to fight. That's a really good thing to learn how to do. When Austin says you wish libertarians would appreciate what their enemies are doing, I think libertarians are the only group who the only group who appreciate that our enemies are in Washington, D.C. They're not just in other countries around the world. And I think that the libertarian insight, the libertarian wisdom is really that even if you go like, well, the right thing for the government to do would have been to kill Osama bin Laden, that the nature of government and particularly big government is that they're not going to do the right thing because they have their own incentives that are not in line with the incentives of the people. We could have killed Osama bin Laden in Tora Bora in late 2001, and they intentionally let him go because George W. Bush and Dick Cheney wanted their war in Iraq. So Should they have that's, killed him? Huh? Should they have killed him there? If the Yes. If the Green Berets were already there and had him in sight, sure, kill him. Okay, that you know. Listen, Dave. That that there you go. Thank you. Yeah, for but Austin, this thank, is but thank it's only because, because that, you. That's all. But I it's only because you've created it's these. Okay let's, let's 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 it's okay it, to it, kill Paris. It's only because you've created these straw men in your head that you think that's even an admission. Yes, we have a right to defend ourselves. We have a right to bring people who have done violence to us to justice. We don't have a right to indiscriminately kill innocent civilians. All right. Here we go. All right, let's get into questions. I'm going to take the Gene Epstein prerogative and take the first question just because I couldn't help it because I picked up something earlier. Austin, you made a contention on uh, many of us who characterize this as a being essentially a prison, you know, Gaza. Uh, you mentioned that they are able to go out and go get work permits. I'm enough of a degenerate that I know a ton of people who have been to jail, and that is 100% a thing at just about every single prison. They have work permits. Usually they don't immediately just let you out. They usually do some sort of graded thing, depending on the nature of your crime, whatever. But that brings me to, do you, uh, do you feel like this is maybe not accepting this as a because I get it. It's not maybe technically prison. Maybe that to some extent it's a colloquialism. Maybe there's a more accurate term we could use somewhere. But do you think maybe it comes across as a little pedantic when you try to use to slap it away? Because I think personally, I feel like it fits pretty well. If not, what is your major contention? Because I feel like in a lot of ways it would fit the, the definition of what many people would consider a prison. Maybe they just aren't able to think of it on a large enough scale for it to make sense to them because it's a gigantic geographical region. But uh, I'll let you go. Well, prison might be closer 
to what it actually is versus what I frequently hear it being called, which is not what Dave Smith has called it tonight, and I appreciate that. I do frequently hear it get called a, a concentration camp, for example, and I imagine that people who are in concentration camps would love to have AK-47s and rockets and, and the means of uh, defense. But, per, you know, as it really, they were quibbling about terminology. I mean, if anything, I think it's probably a step below something like that. It's not, I, I'm not saying making excuses for what's being done to the Palestinians in Gaza. But my argument is, is that, one, they voted for this, not all of them, but they voted for this, into this, this for Hamas in 2006. There was a power struggle with Fatah in 2007, and then they kicked them out and Fatah went to the West Bank. But the oppression that is occurring against the Palestinian people is largely being committed upon them by the people that they asked to rule over them. And that's why I used the water rights as a perfect example, because people always point to Israel cutting off the water to Gaza, but they would be able to access water in Gaza if Hamas had allowed them to dig wells in order to have water in a conflict such as this. there it, It's it's just like when we complain about, you know, what David said uh, just a minute ago, that the evil is our own government. The government, our government is our enemy, and that is the problem. It's the same thing with them. It's the same, it's the same equivalence there, if we're going to make that argument. Hamas is doing to their own people what our government is doing to us, except our government does let us leave our prison and we get visas, and it's kind of nice. You can go and live in Florida and have a good life in this open air prison, if you will. But, you know, a lot of anarchists do use the terminology United States. It's, it's, it's a prison. Oh, life is terrible here. I wish I could live somewhere else. I'm not saying Dave Smith says that. I know he thinks this is probably a straw man for me to say this. But, I mean, you'd have to be blind to not see ANCAPs complaining about the United States as if we're living in Soviet Russia or East Germany during the Cold War. I think that the problem here is really one of scale and one of degree. And what I would like us to do is to support more societies that are heading towards our ideas and ideals. Listen, Israel has a very socialist government, more socialist than the United States. There's lots of criticisms there. Milton Friedman made some of the best criticisms of Israel. And one of the reasons why I think it's important for us to not send aid to Israel, just like we shouldn't be sending it to our enemies, is because just like Europe, we take money, we send it to Israel, they use it for their defense so that they can afford to use you know, socialized medicine uh, for their people so they don't have to pay for their own national defense. And then, of course, the socialists in our country say, well, look, they can have social, they can afford socialized medicine. Well, yeah, because they don't have to pay for their own national defense. So I guess what I'm really arguing here for is that you know, if you want to call it a prison, okay, fine. I, I, I don't concede that, but if you want to call it that, I, I don't necessarily have too much of a beef with that. My beef is, is when calling it a concentration camp. I don't agree with this concept of, of, oh, this is mass murder. I don't think it's mass murder unless you're talking about what Hamas engages in deliberately. I think intent matters, right? The substance of, of the reason why someone is initiating attack actually matters. But I think that if we're going to point fingers at who is responsible for the seconds. situation in Gaza, that the fingers should be pointed at the people that they voted for in 2006. That, that is my contention and, and claim when, it, when you talk about who is responsible for it. If it is a prison, who would be responsible largely? All right, Dave, if you want to give a three minute or less response to sure. either the question or anything uh, Austin said or both. 
So. Well, at this point, it's a very small minority of people in Gaza who voted for, for Hamas back in uh, 2005. True. I mean, a, a million, uh, about half of the people there are under 18. They certainly didn't vote in it. In that election, I think they got 30-something percent. And as, as Austin kind of alluded to, it wasn't until, I mean, he didn't give the whole story, but it wasn't until there was an attempted coup backed by the Israelis that Hamas actually took control of the whole thing. But, you know, to the point where, that Austin was saying, well, it has to be the same if our enemy is our state. State, then their enemy has to be their state. But of course, as I mentioned before, it's not a state as everybody concedes. It's not like uh, Gaza is not their own state. They don't have statehood. And all of the Israelis concede this. That's why they say publicly, oh, we're open to a two state solution eventually, even though I mean, they say that internationally. But then like when Netanyahu's talking to his own Likud party, he talks about how the reason he's supporting Hamas is because he wants to undermine uh, the, the process of them ever getting their own statehood. Um, it, they're not their own state. State. They're completely dominated by the Israelis. And again, Austin just kind of this is why I think in all of these debates that I've seen with Austin, he never really wants to go through the history of what's happened since the creation of Israel till now, because it's just not true to say that Israel's intention is nothing but pure. Israel's intention from the very beginning, and this is in the founding documents of the ruling Likud party right now, Israel's intention is to have all of the land. All of the West Bank, all of Gaza, drive all of the Muslims out and have it be a super Jewish state. That's their intentions. They want their land. They've already taken a ton of it. It's not true that their intention is to just avoid civilian casualties. If it was, they would be going about things in a much different way. All right, let's uh, move on to the next question. I do want to point out, I just refreshed my Patreon tab, and I noticed someone literally popped in to ask that same exact question. So thank you, Daddy Falcor. I wasn't stealing By the way, I say I meant, I meant to make that point, by the way, that a lot of people are able to get work permits to leave prison, but we just had, there's just so many points yeah. going back and forth. So I'm glad you did. All right, uh, I got uh, one more from the Patreon, and then uh, for those out there, if you want to start putting in fake Super Chat, preferably in Rumble, I'll try to prioritize that. But uh, next question, uh, how is Israel slash America's relationship mutually beneficial? I don't even know if necessarily Austin thinks that. I think I know Dave's answer, but I guess that would probably be more directed at Austin. Do you feel our relationship with Israel is beneficial, and if so, why? I mean, and try to keep it three minutes or less. I know it's a huge topic. So. Uh, boy, you'd have to you'd have to really nail that down. I, I do think that mutual cooperation between the United States and Israel is in our benefit. There's fifty billion dollars worth of trade that goes between the United States and Israel, and I've you know I've made these points before about how productive the United States is versus the Arab world. And I, I've made this point about uh, patents, for example. And, you know, regardless of your feelings about intellectual property, consider that whenever you do file for a patent, you are contributing something to society. You are contributing a new invention, whether it's medical, digital, some form of technology to the world. And in 2019 alone, Israel filed for 10th and received 10,219 patents. And if you've ever tried to file a patent for anything, it is extremely difficult. You have to actually create something new or provide some kind of uh, innovation or a, a benefit for something like that. Whereas when you compare to their 22 Arab uh, nations around them, the number of patents that they filed for and received was uh, pretty much nil, negligible. So the, the trade that goes on between the United States and Israel for our that contributes to our economy, can, you know, the, the, brains, uh, the brain trust of Israel that they contribute to the world, but not just in patents, but in, in you know, doctors, lawyers, medicine, and their, their public education system, which is one of the best in the world, in many ways better than the United States. Not that I agree with public education, but it exists and it has rankings and it does very well. 
So I think that, you know, being an enlightened society and having trade with the United States, I think it does benefit us. We should not be paying for their defense, right? To be a neoconservative is to say that we should uh, fight wars of intervention. We should spread democracy around the world at the barrel of a gun. And the United States should act as the world's police. I don't agree with that. But I also think it's important to take a moral stand that I think that some cultures are better than others. And my argument is that Israel does stand alone as a more liberal order against illiberal world orders that are intent on its, statedly so, intent on its destruction. So I do think that the, that the United States does receive a larger benefit from Israel than the cost, although I still don't agree with the cost because I think that if they were forced to pay for their, their own national defense, first of all, we would not be telling them what to do. You know, Ron Paul's speech that he gave, I think, in the 1990s, where he talked about how the, the Israelis attacked the Osirak nuclear reactor in Operation Opera, one of his finest speeches, because he talks about how the United States was telling Israel what to do. They were saying, don't do this. You know, we were, we were intervening just by saying, oh, criticizing their policy, you should do this or you should do that. And Ron Paul was like, hey, listen, they're doing what's in their own best interest. And I think when we pay them, it's kind of like welfare here in the United States. If I'm paying for someone to go get snap cards or WIC cards or what have you, then I kind of feel like, oh, yeah, maybe you should have to work for that. Right. But if I wasn't paying for them, I don't care. It's like if you blow up to 500 pounds. Right. I don't care if I'm not paying for your health care. But as soon as I'm paying for it. Then all of a sudden I have an interest in it. So I hope that we can see the distinction between these two things. One, the, the mutual trade, voluntary trade that exists, and then the forcible right. taxation, which is taken from us to fund their defense, which I don't agree with. And I think it makes them less safe. All right, that's time. Uh, Dave, did you want to respond to this or, or no? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, well, Ron Paul was right when he said that we shouldn't have, interve uh, we shouldn't have intervened in uh, Israel's conflict with, with Iraq at the time. And Ron Paul also, by the way, called Gaza a concentration camp. And I think he was right about that, too. And I think Pat Buchanan was right when he said it. And I think Noam Chomsky was right when he said it. And the fact that they may have some different guns than other concentration camps have doesn't really prove any point. And that's not to conflate them with death camps um, in Nazi Germany. I don't think I would call them that, but I, I certainly think concentration camp is a legitimate uh, term for them. Um, if you're going to consider the relationship that we have with Israel, then you also have to consider the fact that without the backing of the United States of America, Israel would be forced to negotiate and they would probably have to work out some type of two-state solution, which would be much preferable to the situation that we have right now. Um, I don't necessarily disagree with all of what Austin says. I'm not actually, you know, the funny thing is that when you take the position that I'm taking, people tend to call you um, a moral relativist, when really what I'm doing is the exact opposite. I'm, I'm applying objective standards of morality to both sides of this conflict. I do not believe that all cultures are equal, and I think that Israel and the United States of America and Europe has contributed far more in terms of, um, uh, you know, uh, in, in terms of inventions and and has, has contributed a lot more to the world than some of these third world countries have. But we might ask the question, might that have something to do with the fact that we've done everything we can to keep these people in the Stone Age? Personally, my own feeling is that that's probably not 100 percent of the story. I'm not saying that if we hadn't done all of these things, that then the, the Muslim world would be Europe. I'm just saying we should stop doing all of these things. And in terms of when you have a conflict, like if you were at a bar and there was a fight and someone and, and a law enforcement agent came in and said, hey, they might go, well, here's what happened. Uh, this guy threw the punch and then this guy defended himself. They'd want to know, just as libertarians would want to know, who was the aggressor in this conflict? 
And if then you were to go, well, let me tell you who this guy's an inventor and he's invented way more things than the other guy, that would just be totally irrelevant to the conflict. So I don't necessarily disagree. I'm, I want to have free trade with everybody. Um, but the fact that, it, that particularly the United States, the world empire has backed Israel in, for you know decades and decades and decades has been what's allowed Israel to get away with this. Well, as you've seen over the last few weeks, much of the world disagrees with what they're doing. All right. Uh, now we're on to the last question because uh, well, Austin here has a morning show, so I need to respect his time. I got I got I, a night show, too. So we both <laughs> got to get out of here. All right. I'll do one last question. This should be a quick one. And then we'll go into closing remarks. Uh, I'll give Austin the, ch the choice of going first or last because I know he has a morning show. So if you want to go first or if you prefer to have the last word, that's up to you. Uh, but Austin, will you debate this is from Nake Wake uh, gave me a $2 super chat on Rumble. So, hey, you gave me money. You, you get your question in. Austin, will you debate Ryan Dawson on Israel versus Palestine? And then, you know, I guess it's kind of a separate question or just statement. I think you're correct that libertarians can and should say which side is worse, but I think you're wrong about which side has been worse. So the question is, will you debate Ryan Dawson? Okay, so so I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, and I'll say no, and not just because, like, you know, I'm, I'm scared of him or I just, you know, or whatever. I was actually talking earlier to my wife about this, and, and I saw that uh, our buddy – Liberty Lockpod, Clint Russell had said the same thing. That he's tired of these debates with libertarians because, you know, I don't think that a lot of minds are being changed necessarily over what's happening here tonight. And I don't know that any minds are going to change if I debate Ryan Dawson over that or stuff like that. Maybe you get more likes or something like that. But at this point, my strategy in the last, you know, two, three years or really three, four, five years has been to not necessarily ignore the libertarian movement so much as to just kind of like focus on bigger picture things and focus on normies. That's why like my show is the wake up America show. And it's not like the hardcore libertarian minarchist constitutionalist podcast, right? Because I'm trying to like, you know, bring in people with like, you know, bring in who are interested in libertarian ideas and kind of like be the wide end of the sales funnel, if you will. So I don't like spending a lot of time like fighting with libertarians and having disagreements with people who I ha agree with. I mean, Dave and I may have, if you counted up, we probably agreed on 50% of the things that we were talking about here tonight. And we just vi violently disagree on the 50% of things that we disagree with. But in the perspective of a larger picture, if we're going to look at the things on the macro lens, we agree probably on like 80 to 90% of things, right? So I, I don't want to have, I honestly, after this week, I basically had, was saying to myself earlier today, and, it's, and it kind of hit at home when I saw Clint Russell saying this, is that I really don't want to be fighting with libertarians. I don't think it's productive. I think we we, we embarrass ourselves. Like, I'm, I, I'm not immune to that, right? We all make mistakes and we have some dumb tweets and we say things that we don't mean. And we shouldn't be doing fights with one another unless we're really trying to like determine like some critical crux policy point that really is going to change things. So after this week, uh, my plan was to go back to start focusing on things, the norm, my normie strategy of libertarianism. And, you know, I don't talk about it very much because, you know, it only makes sense to a very small amount of people. But my whole plan is to get regular people, mom and pop Joes, who are kind of like, oh, you know, like, I think we were spending too much money on Russia and Ukraine, or I, I you know, I support Israel morally, but I, I don't, I don't know about spending all that money over there on them and all that kind of stuff. And they get to them, go, hey, you know, not hit them over the head with Rothbard immediately, or you know, but uh, you know, introduce them to the ideas. So, so I, I really would like to for the rancor to end, right? Just because it it weighs on you heavily, and I don't think that it's 
always that productive, although I thought that this debate would be, and and Clint really wanted a piece of me, and I was like, hey, fine, why not? So, so yeah, I, unless there's really some major incentive or something like that, I really don't see myself like debate. You know, listen, I'm a capitalist. You, know, you pay me 10 grand, I'll probably show up and debate. But I mean, at the end of the day, I'd really like us to start to come together and focus on what we agree on more and what we can actually accomplish. We've got an election coming up next year. I mean, how much does the wider world really care about what Ryan Dawson and Austin Peterson think about Israel versus Hamas? Probably not much, right? So uh, anyway, so should I make my closing remarks now or does, uh, we, does Dave need to respond to that? Or I mean, if Dave wants to, I don't, feel like I don't care if you to, debate but, Ryan Dawson yeah, or not. Yeah, I, don't, yeah, I, I, just, I will say, no offense to Ryan Dawson, I feel like we've hit the zenith here. So yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah. this, is, this is probably like the best it's going to get in terms yeah. of like this this conflict here. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so you, want, you, Dave, you can go ahead and go in closing remarks if you want though. Okay, so so essentially, like Dave, first of all, I, I have great respect for you, and I think that that a lot of these quibbles, like you know, as as metastasized as they may be in the in the world of the internet, I think that uh, we probably agree on a lot more things than we disagree on. Although I I would love it if you know we could, as libertarians, really have a more fleshed out idea of what "don't tread on me" really means. And I think that there are some problems with the non-aggression principle in that it sort of retards our thinking of, you know, what really is moral retaliation. And maybe I think we do need to spend more time on just war theory, what, you know, not just knowing what a just war is, but how can we possibly fight in a modern context, a just war that does reduce the amount of civilian casualties while recognizing, like Dave said earlier, that it, yes, it is inevitable. And we can say morally that it is incorrect, but that it is also inevitable. So in some ways, we might be having discussions on, well, we'd like Raytheon to produce more laser-guided bombs than cluster bombs, because obviously cluster bombs are much worse than a laser-guided bomb, for example. But we know we don't live in a world where there will never be any bombs. So I, so I, what I hope that uh, we've accomplished here tonight is that is that people will look a little bit more closely at the terminology that they use when they're describing things like this, uh, that they will not engage in presentism. And I'm not saying that Dave does this necessarily because I, I don't have a full analysis of his as, as, as uh, others because I mostly read things versus like listen to podcasts and things like that. And uh, Dave, I don't know if you do a column or anything like that, but I would love to read it if you do. I just, I'm not aware. Uh, but I hope that people will actually start to narrow down and nail down their worldviews when it comes to conflict and to form a more coherent war policy for libertarianism. What does war libertarianism look like when we're engaged in a just war? If Thomas Jefferson had f had declared a constitutional war against the Barbary pirates and done it in a proper way, what would have been the right way to fight that conflict that would have been in line with libertarian principles? We have a lot of anti-war libertarian thinkers. Do we have any just war libertarian thinkers that are prominent, that are out there, that are making the case for a just war and, and how to fight it. I mean, you know, I know Ron Paul himself even said that he did regret his war in Afghanistan, but I think a lot of people did believe that that war, at least initially, was justified. And, you know, again, we can debate the details, quibble about the details of that some other time, perhaps on Twitter, hopefully not. But, um, but I spark these debates because I do think that there is a problem with a pacifism that is not only a pacifism for itself, but it forces a, a pacifism on other people. And before you say it's a straw man or anything like that, I would say, you know, Bob Murphy, for example, does say he is a pacifist and that's fine. And I, I believe in a more, in an order, a, a, a moral order that allows for pacifists, Amish, 
you know, anarcho-capitalists, communes to exist, right? Hippie com communes, right? If you want to have a socialist commune, as long as you're not forcing it on, on other people, right? That those people can exist within our society, and that's fine. But it's important to remember that the Amish exist under the cloak of nuclear protection, right? That the people who sleep soundly in our, their beds tonight, there is someone who keeps the wolf at the door. How do we control that guardian at the gates? How do we control the night watchman, if you will, if you're familiar with the term of the, the night watchman state? How do we have a night watchman if, we're, if a government is inevitable? And I know many of you might not agree with it. I just happen to think that it is inevitable. What can we place, what kind of rules that are more than just a law to say the government can't do this? How can we actually back up our ideas with force if necessary? If communists want to force a, their worldview on us, and if totalitarians want to force their worldview on us, if Islamic fascists want to force their world on us, then how do we have a, how can we enforce a liberal order that actually protects individual natural rights when we ourselves are required to go to war to prevent totalitarianism, to prevent communism, to prevent fascism or imperialism? What are the actual legitimate tactics of war libertarians can use justifiably to defend themselves without violating some international law. Not, you know, not that I agree with the UN or international law or anything like that. So my argument is simply that we need to put a little bit of teeth in the snake on the Gadsden flag. And I just want to say good night and thank you, Dave. And thank you, Jose, for taking the time. I think that this has been a constructive conversation and I really hope that our listeners got something out of it tonight. So thank you very much. Uh, real quick, before we move on to Dave, can you tell people where they can find you at Austin? Sure. So Wake Up America show, it's uh, Monday through Friday, 7 to 9 a.m. Central, uh, rumble.com slash AP for Liberty. That's AP, the number four. It's a great way to start your day. Have a cup of coffee. Get, you're getting your kids off to school. You want to hear about the news, but from a Liberty perspective, right, then it's a great way to like listen in and have some fun. We have a lot of laughs. There's a lot of jokes and great interviews, top-notch content. If you want to find out what's happening in the world before everybody else does and hear my libertarian take on things, then join us at uh, rumble.com slash AP for Liberty. And uh, thanks again, gentlemen. Oh, thank you. Uh, Dave, uh, you can give your uh, final statement. Sure. Um, so I think that, you know, when Austin talks about how we guard the, the night watchman is a kind of interesting theoretical, but the truth is there is no night watchman. We don't live under a night watchman state. We live under the biggest government in the history of the world. And I'm certainly not a pacifist. I believe in the right to self-defense. And I think there is such thing as a just war. And there's some fairly obvious cases of a just war, like you're invaded by a foreign army and you have the right to fight off that foreign army. And I think you have the right to try to kill that army that's there to try to kill you. Um, but if you look at, say, the last uh, 20 years where we have the war in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, the drone campaign in Pakistan, you have us funding a proxy war on Russia's border, you have the war posture with China, and now you have us uh, giving unconditional support to Israel in their war in, uh, in Palestine. I don't think the real issue of our day is pacifism. And it just seems strange to me that in this time, particularly for somebody who is a non-interventionist, that they would use this moment to really start attacking the Ron Paul libertarians for just being too non-interventionist-y. Like, we can have some theoretical conversation about what a just war from a libertarian perspective looks like, even if you're like from the minarchist perspective. Maybe there is some scenario. 
It don't. It doesn't look anything like what Israel's doing to Gaza right now. I'll tell you that much. And I think what is lost in a lot of these debates is like, like I would have kind of found it more interesting to actually have a debate about the history of Israel and Palestine instead of focusing on like the Barbary Wars, which I think have like nothing to do with that. What Israel's doing right now is horrific and inexcusable. And even above that, from the pro-Israel point of view, they have done exactly what the United States of America did after 9-11. They have taken the bait. The point of terrorism is to provoke a reaction. And Israel has actually taken the bait to such an extent that I believe their very existence is threatened right now in a way that it's never been in my lifetime. Uh, Perhaps you could argue in the 67 war or perhaps in 47, 48, it was in doubt. You know what I mean? Whether there would ever be an existence of, of Israel. Right now, you have all across the world massive anti-Israel protests. And I do not think it's out of the question that other Arab uh, countries, other Muslim countries are going to get involved in this war. What they're doing to the people of Gaza right now is exactly what Hamas wanted them to do. Because Hamas doesn't care. They don't care about Israeli citizens, and they don't care about uh, Muslim citizens, uh, Palestinian citizens either. And so they were quite happy to goad Israel into doing this, which is now completely turned the world against Israel, and kind of rightfully so, because what they're doing is so horrific. So um, yeah, thanks to both you gentlemen uh, for uh, for taking the time. And um, yeah, I'm um, um, Dave. You guys all know where to find me. <laughs> All right. Yeah. No need. No need for plugs. Uh, but yeah, I appreciate everyone who showed up today. I appreciate you guys being here. This is a this is a good time. Uh, with that, for all the people here not not haven't been here, this is your first time checking out my show. Uh, yeah, you can follow me on YouTube, all the major auto podcasters, Odyssey and Rumble as well. Follow me on Twitter at Tower Gang Jose. Uh, I did forget to give a shout out to one of my sponsors. Sorry, uh, Jolly on Klebold <laughs> at Jolly on Klebold. Uh, but yeah, uh, with that, like, share, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff, and we are out of here. Thank you.